Welcome to episode 128 of Between the Times, a podcast of Christ Church for Christ Church and for anyone else who would like to listen in. It's great uh, to be here uh, with my good friend, uh, Dr. Gabriel Williams, who is a member of Christ Church and also a professor of atmospheric physics uh, at the <laughs> College of Charleston. Uh, Gabe, mm. good to have, have you here this morning. It's good being here. It's good being here. Uh, my name is John Payne. I'm the senior minister of Christ Church Presbyterian uh, here in Charleston, South Carolina. And uh, we are uh, glad to be back uh, behind the mic. It's been a while. Of course, we had a recent interview with Ivor Martin, but it has mm. been a few months since we've been together. And and here we are uh, during the Advent season. That's right. That's uh, right. Uh, it's, it's the most wonderful time of the year, right? <laughs> That's what the song says. <laughs> sort of. <laughs> well, um, of course, in our families, we all have various Christian uh, Christmas traditions. Mm-hmm. And uh, Gabe, what are some traditions you have in your family on Christmas Day? Well, apart from what most people do in terms of having like a Christmas dinner and the tree is up, decorations, what I always what do you what do you have for dinner? Well, uh, last few years has been a turkey because we usually buy a turkey, freeze it in the previous year, and pull that out and defrost it, and we have this great turkey recipe that we've developed over time. So that's going to be part of our normal Thanksgiving, you know, evening tradition itself. Uh, then earlier, uh, before we c- kind of start the opening the presents, uh, one of the things I often try to do for the kids is just to kind of focus their attention upon what Christmas is. And I do a short little discussion on what the incarnation is and why it's important and why is it, in a sense, the peak of the uh, season in terms of one of the basic things that Christians confess. Apart from the resurrection from the dead, we actually have the glorious mystery of the incarnation. So we do like a five, 10 minute discussion. And then while I still have their attention before they rip the presents open, <laughs> <laughs> then we just talk about some of the things that we are just grateful for because, you know, Christmas is a week before the new year. So you can kind of reflect upon, you know, what's been good this whole year. What can you be grateful for? Things like that. Oh, that's wonderful. Um, one of the traditions that our family has is to collect uh, Christmas ornaments. Mm. Uh, so our, our tree, which is uh, always a live tree. Now that may change at one point. Uh, they're getting very expensive. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but we have a live tree and we put uh, uh, ornaments all over. And those ornaments are really span the, the life of our marriage. Uh, of mm. course, we'll have ornaments from when uh, Marla... Uh, and I were were, were, were kids, mm-hmm. and it just brings back a lot of wonderful memories. And that really brings up a point, isn't it, that um, there really is a, a, a distinction between what we'd call a, the cultural side of Christmas yes. uh, as well as the, the celebration um, of the incarnation of mm-hmm. our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And I know, uh, Gabe, we're of the same mind on this. I don't mm-hmm. feel that it's a law or a rule for us to celebrate Christmas. Correct. Uh, we enjoy talking about, thinking about, meditating upon uh, the incarnation and virgin birth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ mm-hmm. all year long. Amen. Uh, in fact, it's kind of a shame that we only sing Christmas hymns this time of year. And it's the best of the hymnody that we have in terms of meditating upon the actual glory of God in the incarnation. Yeah, such rich theology exactly. in many of our hymns. and um, But all the same, it's there are wonderful family traditions and, mm-hmm. and, and cultural traditions surrounding this time of year. And, uh, and so so I think we can make a distinction between them and not feel beholden uh, to them 
Um, but also because so many people are thinking about um, Christmas because of the Western tradition of the church calendar, which mm-hmm. we don't hold to here. Mm-hmm. Um, but we uh, we do give attention to the doctrine of, of the incarnation and virgin birth of Christ because uh, it seems the whole world is, is turning their attention to this. Why not take mm-hmm. advantage of this as a church to think and think about it and preach on it and uh, and to sing about it? Exactly. And if you, again, this think about what are the most fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith and just think about the Apostles Creed that you've memorized the Nicene Creed all of our creeds and confessions have some statement on the incarnation because it's worth pondering about it's worth adoring and worshiping and to be blunt and honest um, if you do not follow the church calendar, that means it's likely the case you won't think about the incarnation that much. So that means you need to have something to pull your mind back to focus upon the foundations of the faith. And what's more foundational than the eternal Son of God assuming human nature for us and for our salvation? Amen. And that really brings us to the, the topic of our discussion uh, today, and that is uh, what do we learn about Christmas, uh, the the incarnation and virgin birth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, mm-hmm. from our confessional heritage. That's right. Uh, we, of course, have uh, wonderful hymnals, uh, Trinity Psalter hymnals in our church, mm-hmm. and in the back of those hymnals are six reformed confessions Mm -hmm. the westminster confession of faith the westminster larger and shorter catechisms the heidelberg catechism the belgic confession and the canons of dort Uh, these are a treasure trove of doctrine uh, and statements uh, whereby uh, they are summaries uh, of the bible's teaching on Mm -hmm. a number of heads of doctrine and uh, one of them of course is um the incarnation and birth of christ that's right and if you go back to what was just mentioned of those six creeds and confessions five of them have explicit statements on one uh, why must our mediator be god two why must our mediator be man and three what do we mean when we speak about the uh, jesus christ himself being born of a virgin and what does it mean to say that jesus christ was conceived by the holy ghost all of those things are explicitly discussed in our confessions in chapter 8 of the westminster confession of faith uh, you have a wonderful uh, explanation uh, of of who christ is and uh, what he came to do there are eight paragraphs Uh, And in uh, the first paragraph, uh, it states, It pleased God in His eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, His only begotten Son, to be the mediator between God and man, the prophet, priest, and king, the head and savior of His church, the heir of all things, and judge of the world, unto whom He did from all eternity give a people, to be his seed, and to be by him in time redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, and glorified. What a fantastic Mm -hmm. opening paragraph to the Christology of the Westminster Confession. Why is this so important? Because uh, God had a purpose and has Mm -hmm. a purpose of redemption. It's not God doesn't scratch his head and... uh, (coughs) And things uh, occur to him. Exactly. Uh, he, he's not 
wondering what's going to happen next as as we do he has always had a purpose from before time and so christ being sent into the world um is a part of his eternal purpose and if you think back to the rest of our the theology of the covenants in particular think about what the covenant of redemption is it is the eternal pact whereby the father son and spirit in a sense agree to save people for them for himself and what best demonstrates that the covenant of redemption is true than the incarnation of the son of god Many heresies emerged in the early church, of mm -hmm. course, uh, one of those being Gnosticism, mm -hmm. uh, various uh, heresies that taught uh, that Christ was an emanation from God, that he was mm -hmm. not God himself. And so, uh, you, you have um, various councils uh, mm -hmm. that met in order to uh, work through these challenging uh, doctrines of the, the nature of Christ, and of course, um, our confessions state clearly now, uh, mm -hmm. based on uh, various creeds that we had uh, in the early church about the new, uh, the the, uh, the nature of Christ. We have, uh, of course, Nicaea and Chalcedon. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Um, and and in paragraph two, we we hear echoes of. Uh, Nicaea and Chalcedon, in, in paragraph 2 of chapter 8 of the Westminster Confession, it states, The Son of God, the second person in the Trinity, being very and eternal God, mm -hmm. of one substance and equal with the Father, did, when the fullness of time was come, take upon him man's nature, with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary, of her substance, so that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures, the Godhead and the manhood, were inseparably joined together in one person, without conversion, composition, or confusion, which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. Amen. And... One of the things that uh, you love about the Westminster uh, Confession is that it is very precise language, and so it's it's you know sometimes difficult to read through each individual clause to see why this is placed in here. But remember, as was already stated, numerous heresies that currently exist and existed in the past are meant to guard two very important realities regarding Jesus Christ. As it says here, he is very in eternal God, which means that in every way that we describe the attributes of God, that is true for the Son of God. And yet we have this glorious mystery that somehow the eternal, impassable, infinite God himself took upon him man's nature. And now you have the second great mystery of the Christian faith. We have the doctrine of the Trinity, which is was something you were pondering, meditating, thinking about constantly. But then the second great one is what we call the hypostatic union, the union of the two natures in one whole person. And if you read through uh, paragraph two, you have multiple statements that are essentially negative, guarding against denying the divinity of the son and guarding against any rejection of the humanity of jesus christ and it's important because it's not just a throwaway statement to say that he's god and man 
the divine nature and the human nature are both needed and requisite for our salvation. It's, it's so important to remember that. Um, lots of confusion on that over the centuries. And I think mm. many modern-day evangelicals walk around with a lot of confusion as well because they've not been taught. Right. They don't have catechisms and confessions as a part of their Christian experience, as mm. part of the discipleship that they've been under. Uh, we hear lots of sentimentality and... Mm. Um, and uh, sort of superficial comments being made as it turn as it regards mm-hmm. uh, these doctrines, and so Christians don't don't really understand these things and uh, have a lot of confusion. I love what Phil Riken says in his commentary on Luke about this. He said, "Quote: Only the Virgin Birth <coughs> preserves the humanity and the deity of Jesus Christ. Amen. His conception by the Spirit points to His deity." His birth from a woman points to his humanity. One person, two natures, a divine nature and a human nature. And because he was conceived by a unique creative act of the Holy Spirit, Jesus was not corrupted by the guilt of Adam. Mm -hmm. Fallen humanity could not produce its own savior. He had to come from somewhere outside by way of divine initiative and intervention. Therefore, God sent Jesus into the world as the perfect Son of God, born without sin. Amen. Sometimes people get thrown off by things like this because salvation to them is about what they do mm-hmm. and not about what God has done in and through uh, His His Son, uh, the Lord Jesus. Uh, and so, uh, it's important to recognize that our nature fell in Adam. Mm-hmm. And our nature must be rescued in Christ, Amen. in a second Adam. And uh, it's just very important to, to remember that, because people might think, well, why doesn't, um, why doesn't God just sort of wave his divine wand and forgive everybody? Is it, why can't he just do that? Well, um, first of all, God can't do anything. That, that, that's a lie, that God uh, can do anything. You know, this, uh, God can't sin. Amen. Uh, God can't lie. Uh, it's not a part of His nature. It's impossible for Him to do that. Um, and so, while we read scriptures like, uh, what is impossible with man is possible with God, we, we say yes, but according to His holy will. Exactly. And for, for God's wrath to be propitiated, for His justice to be satisfied, there must be a mediator, and he must be one of us. Amen. What we ruined as humanity must be fixed by humanity, mm-hmm. and of course, we can't do it, and so God sent his own son to take on human flesh mm-hmm. to carry out and to fulfill uh, all the requirements of the law and, and to pay the debt of our sin. And this is not a uniquely Reformed or Protestant uh, sort of teaching. And there's a old statement that comes from the early church that says, whatever God did not assume, he cannot redeem. And what that is meant to uh, say in a nutshell is that in order for man to be saved who has fallen to sin, that means God must assume man's nature because man is the only true representative of man. But that kind of leads to the next series of points about if that is the case, how does the actual incarnation of Jesus Christ benefit us? And when it comes to one of the more pastoral statements you'll find in catechisms, Heidelberg Catechism question 36 answers this very well. 
which says the following question 36 how does the holy conception and birth of christ benefit you so this is an exposition of the apostles creed at this point and the answer is he meaning jesus christ is our mediator and in god's sight he covers with his innocence and perfect holiness my sin in which i was conceived and so again why was it necessary or why is it useful or beneficial to us that god has uh, that jesus christ himself our mediator was conceived by the virgin mary born etc it's because that is the only way that he can actually truly be our mediator it cannot be an angel from heaven that can mediate the sins of men it cannot be some other creature it must be man because man is the one who has fallen and that is also the beauty of the gospel because in jesus christ we have someone who perfectly obeyed the law and his perfect holiness is given to us and that's why we can rejoice knowing that the incarnation in one sense secures and guarantees that we have a representative in heaven for us there's a wonderful series of questions in the larger catechism, the Westminster Larger Catechism, that deal with this same theme, which are so helpful. And this also, doesn't it, Gabe, reinforce mm -hmm. uh, the, the helpfulness of catechisms, the, exactly. um, the echoing back of truth uh, from question and answer form, uh, so as to retain this truth and to have those theological categories in our minds to make sense of the Bible. That's right. Um, and uh, so in question 37, it is asked, how did Christ, being the Son of God, become man? Answer, Christ, the Son of God, became man by taking to himself a true body and a reasonable soul being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary, of her substance, and born of her, yet without sin. The following question asks, why was it requisite that the mediator should be God? Mm -hmm. It was requisite that the mediator should be God, that he might sustain and keep the human nature from sinking under the infinite wrath of God and the power of death, mm -hmm. give worth and efficacy to his sufferings, obedience and intercession, and to satisfy God's justice, procure his favor, purchase a peculiar people, give his spirit to them, conquer all their enemies, and bring them to everlasting salvation. Isn't this wonderful? Amen. Who can do this except for God? That's right. And so Amen. Christ must be both God and man. And that's the next question mm -hmm. that's asked. Why was it requisite that the mediator should be man? It was requisite that the mediator should be man, that he might advance our nature, perform obedience to the law, suffer and make intercession for us in our nature, have a fellow feeling of our infirmities, that we might receive the adoption of sons and have comfort and access with boldness unto the throne of grace. Amen. Uh, Christ, uh, both God and man, uh, is our mediator. He is the perfect representation of God to man and the perfect representation of man to God. And when we are united to him, we stand with him and in uh, a right relationship with God the Father. Amen. And a great meditation is the last uh, aspect of the question that was just read, that because of the incarnation of the Son of God becoming man, we actually have confidence to approach the throne of grace. 
And that one, that by itself is enough to meditate on sufficiently, because what it means is that we no longer have to tremble in fear to approach God's throne. Rather, the fact that Jesus Christ is currently on the right hand of the Father in our nature means that we have an advocate and intercessor for us. And because of his incarnation, we can now go to the throne of grace. Amen. Liberal theology, of course, teaches that God's Son was born into this world uh, to have solidarity with man, to be an, a moral example, yeah. uh, to it's this kind of sentimentalism of bringing unity to the world. Mm -hmm. um, that is all nonsense. Yeah. Um, Christ was born into this world uh, to satisfy the requirements of God's law and then to go to the cross to pay the, the debt of our sins. That's right. As the God-man, to be able to bear up the uh, under the weight of our sin and under the weight of the wrath of God and, and to receive the penalty that we deserve. And so, uh, Gabe, last night actually at our uh, MUSC and 20-somethings Christmas fellowship and gathering, um, I shared a devotion from John 1. Uh, that uh, the Word became flesh mm. and dwelt among us, the eternal Word. That's right. And then I grabbed a, um, a Christmas ornament off my tree, which is uh, a spike. Mm. And that Christmas ornament is meant to hang next to the trunk of the tree to reinforce that Christ was born uh, to die. Mm. And so... Um, this long metal spike is a powerful reminder to us that uh, Christmas isn't about sentimentalism. That's right. Uh, it's about this child being born to the Virgin Mary uh, to do that which Adam failed to do and which we fail to do every day to, to, to glorify God and to live according to His law and, and, to, and to go to the cross and to pay the enormous, colossal debt of our sin and to die. The wages of sin is death, and Christ right. paid those wages. And then on the third day, he rose again from the dead triumphantly. And now he is at the right hand of God, and he is our intercessor. Mm -hmm. Only one who is both the Son of Man and the Son of God right. could accomplish this. And so we rejoice uh, in that this Christmas. That is the heart of Christmas. Well, we are so uh, thankful that you joined us for this episode of Between the Times, and uh, we look forward uh, to talking with you again soon. And if you are looking for a place to worship on Christmas weekend, we do have our annual Christmas Eve service, which begins at 5 o'clock p.m. We would love for you to join us for that. And then we will have a service at 10.30 a.m. on Sunday morning, Christmas morning. We would love for you to join us as we worship our great God and celebrate our Savior's birth. <laughs>